If you've been with us the past few Sundays, you're probably feeling a need for some fresh air because uh, Paul has been immersing us in the sinful condition of mankind, reminding us all that man has embraced and all that God has given them over to unrighteousness, wickedness, evil in all of its forms and all the dispositions of the twisted heart of man. Three times Paul used the expression in chapter 1, God gave them over to describe God's judgment on mankind by giving humanity over to its own wickedness. And he details that unrighteousness with this whole list of sins at the end of chapter 1 and concludes with the really ugly picture of man's utter shamelessness by which he not only commits sins and does evil, but he actually approves of evil in others. He rejoices to see it and applauds it. Verse 32 of chapter 1 says, Although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So we might feel the need of a a change of subject, a a way out of the mire, something more positive. Well, you can't have it. (laughs) Not yet. uh, Paul is going to press the point even harder in chapter 2 than he did in chapter 1. More sharply and really in a more um, astonishing fashion in some ways. The discussion in chapter 2 does involve some changes from chapter 1. You're going to see some of the very same words, very familiar terms, um, unrighteousness, which is a major theme in the book of Romans, righteousness and unrighteousness, wrath, God's holy anger against sin, and truth. But there are also some significant changes. If you look, um, first of all, look at the very first word in chapter 2. And what you'll see is the word therefore. And as you always, when you see the word therefore, you have to say, what's the therefore, therefore? And the therefore is always there to connect you back to what's already been said. So chapter 2 is flowing out of chapter 1. It's a development of the themes he's already discussed. Where it's linked together. So let's revisit um, briefly those key words in chapter 1. We talked about wrath and unrighteousness and truth. And you'll find all of them in verse 18 of chapter 1. And if you look uh, back at that again, Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we see God's wrath revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what do men do? They stuff down, they suppress, they drive down the truth in unrighteousness. They cram the truth so deep in their hearts that they don't think about it that God is, that God judges, that God is perfectly holy, and he is not happy with what men do. So man has knowledge, but it is suppressed. And if you look at verse 19, it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are what? Without excuse. Those last words of verse 20 are very important, without excuse. And those same words appear right away in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are, what? Without excuse. And right away then you see the similarities between the two chapters, and you start to see the differences right away also. In chapter 1, verse 20, he says, they are without excuse. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, you are without excuse. Right? Chapter 1 considered the human condition in in broad 
terms, in, in general terms, the general condition of mankind. Chapter 2 takes that general condition and points a finger and says, you are without excuse. And he's talking to a certain kind of person in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is general, chapter 2 gets personal. It's, easy really, it's really easy to sit back and you know, do theology and talk about them. And that's sort of what chapter 1 is doing. They, them, all the days. They did this, they did that, God gave them over. That's somebody else, right? I mean, that's not necessarily me. And if we are people of reasonably good morals, we chafe under the idea that God's wrath abides on us because we know we're too nice for that. We look at Paul's list of sins in verse 24 through 32 and we say, well, I haven't done most of those. Well, not all of them, you know, and not all the time, and I'm really better than that. I mean, that sounds like a really depraved group of folks there. Are you really better than all of that? If you think so, then Paul has words that's directed right at the person that thinks they're better than that. And that's the whole point of the beginning of chapter 2. He's no longer talking about them, he's talking about you, you and I. And what he says about you has a lot to do with what he said about them. For one thing, those folks and you share one thing in common, right away. And what is it? Without excuse. Without excuse before the judgment of God. Clearly, the you Paul is talking to is someone who believes himself to be quite above all of this talk of wickedness. They hear all that list of sins in chapter 1 and go, that's just not me. I don't do that. I don't do this. Many commentators on Romans suggest that he's addressing Jewish people here exclusively because they really did believe that the worst of them was in a better position before God than the best of the Gentiles. Salvation was really a, a, a gift of birth because they were physical descendants of Abraham. They were owed salvation through that and they were in, inherently superior to the surrounding peoples. And that's true. Um, Jewish people taught that in the first century. But plainly, uh, by verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul is addressing Jews, but I don't think he is here. For one thing, this book is written to the Romans and there was only a minority of Jews in the congregation there, likely. I believe he's being intentionally inclusive when he talks in these first verses here. We've discussed previously that the Jews did not have a monopoly on basic moral truths. All these ancient cultures had moral teachers. They had people that tried to condemn wickedness and point people in the right direction. And the Romans themselves, as decadent as they were, had men who wrote and talked and tried to encourage people to do better, to love their families, to not do gladiator shows, to um, you know, be faithful at home, to uh, be honest and full of integrity in their dealings at work, and all those kinds of things. They, they believed in all of that as right. They knew right from wrong. And Paul is addressing here anyone who doesn't identify with the kind of behavior described in the last nine verses of chapter one. He's talking to the person who says, well, I know that's wrong. All those things. I'm not a captive to lust, and I'm not wicked or greedy or deceitful or gossipy or proud or unloving or unmerciful, and I do not approve of that either. Not at all. I don't approve of that. So this is the person whose standard of evaluation, whose self-analysis, if you will, is based not on God's law, but on a comparison with other people. I don't do that. 
or I'm better than that, or I only do it when I'm really in a bad mood, but not regularly, like so-and-so. So when he does the comparison, he feels good about himself. That's the person Paul's talking to. And what does Paul say to such a person? You are without excuse. Every man of you, he says, who passes judgment. Verse 1. You are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment. So now we're moving into very important theological territory. This is answering some of the biggest, most troubling questions, most common questions that people have regarding the Christian faith. How has God judged the world when he only gave the law to this little tiny group of people in the world? How, how is that fair? Right? On what basis does he hold other people accountable that have never heard the law of Moses or never heard about Jesus or all of that? What about the religious or the righteous Hindu or the, the righteous Muslim person or the jungle native who's never heard of the Bible or any of the major religions of the world? He's just an animist, but he's a, a person of integrity and all of that. Well, now watch. Paul is going to explain exactly how God will judge people who've never heard the Bible. That's what, he's, that's what this chapter deals with primarily. And the moral person. So in verse 1 he says... Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. Those are really important words. You condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. The person condemns themselves who believes himself to be righteous or a person of integrity by judging other people as wicked and yet doing the same thing. That's, that's how this works. That is the standard. People who don't know God's law will not be judged by God's law. A person who's never heard of the Ten Commandments will never have to answer to God for those Ten Commandments. God will actually condescend. He'll, he'll lower himself so much that he will let people set their own standard. Now that's pretty, that's pretty merciful. What if you did that with your children? You know what? We're not going to punish you unless you break your own rules. You know what? If you actually did that, I'll bet they'd break them all the time. And that's exactly what happens with humanity. God says, you can set your own standard. I just think this is really remarkable that God would do this. And it shows just how far man is fallen. How corrupt his nature really is. You know, I spend a lot of my time trying to get people who don't have Christ who don't know him, to think seriously about God's standard of righteousness because what everybody does is lower the standard. Everybody picks and chooses the rules they like and just ignores the other ones. You know, well, I like this sin, I'm going to do that, and all that kind of stuff. Everybody does that. Most people are strangely unconcerned with what God thinks about their lives. I mean, it's really remarkable. I mean, he's only the infinitely powerful creator and judge of the entire universe. But in spite of that, most people just pick and choose the morals they like and just let the other things go and with, utterly without regard to him uh, literally without regard to him they don't even consider what he has to say about how they live their lives so I'm running around saying wake up God has revealed this standard to us and it's way up here and if we don't conform then we're in a lot of trouble and we have desperately a need for a savior because we can't meet this standard and, and to fly to Jesus because he's the only hope I mean that's my job it's also my passion. And that's the right thing to say because people are so smug 
about their own self-righteousness. They think they're so good because they don't compare themselves to God's standard. They compare themselves to other people. You know, they had a survey a few years back and they, you know, a religious survey of the country and they, most people believe in hell and most people believe a lot of people they know are going there. But they don't believe they're going there. It's like 80% are sure they're going to heaven but they have a lot of doubts about all their friends and family. I mean, I mean, people just naturally think that they're better morally than other people are, and, uh, which is quite interesting. But amazingly, God will go the distance with the ways of the wicked. He will go with them for a while. He says, I'll tell you what, you don't like my standard. I will judge you, for I must judge all men because I'm the creator and the moral governor of the universe. But I will judge you by your standard. Whatever you say the rules are, that's what I will judge you by. For example, if you judge another person because they lied to you, you say, he lied to me, that's so wicked, and you start telling other people about how bad this person is because they lied to you and all of that. And yet, if you lie about somebody else, you are self-condemned. If somebody stole from you, and you were angry with that person, but you stole from another person. If somebody cheated you, but you cheated somebody else. I mean, we see how it goes. On and on. You can go down. If you, if they gossiped about me. Did you hear what they did? They gossiped about me. They were telling stories about me to other people. Did you know about them? I want to tell you a story about them. Because they, you know, you're self-condemned. Whatever your standard is, God will judge you by your own standard. So whatever people do to you that burns you up, that draws forth your judgment by that standard, if you've never heard God's word, you will be judged by that. Now, how do you think most people would do with this standard? Be honest now. Most people would fail miserably. In fact, I can say pretty safely that everybody would fail in this way. Everyone is guilty of what they condemn in others. In fact, almost more so, because usually we hate in others the thing that we're most guilty of ourselves. We most despise in other people what we do ourselves. Um, so verse 2 comes along. Paul says, We know that the judgment of God rightly, and the Greek text says according to truth, the judgment of God according to truth rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God is perfectly true and right to bring judgment to bear on those who violate their own moral standard. So God can lower the bar, if you will, a thousandfold, allowing man his own vain, self-absorbed standard and still we will be condemned under our own meager standard. So he says, you are without excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment and who doesn't pass judgment. Some people actually believe that condemning sin in others is, is righteous in themselves. If you judge somebody else, that's sort of like being righteous. If you don't like their sin, that makes you righteous. Even when you do the same thing. Some people are really counting on being excused on Judgment Day, thinking that their sins are less severe than most, or that God will overlook their little transgressions, or, you know, their, um, what are some of the terms we use, you know, our, our little foibles or something. It's interesting all the little euphemisms we have for our moral failure. But it was not so. Verse 3, and do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape? the judgment of God? 
No excuse, no escape. If you remember four words from today, no excuse, no escape. That's really what he's saying. And then as we see in verse 4, the moralist who judges others actually comes to the point where he has no appreciation for God's mercy towards him. Verse 4, he says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is often kind and merciful to the wicked, even the self-righteous. Earlier today we were reading Psalm 73 in the service, and that's what the psalmist was dealing with. Why are the wicked fat and healthy and successful and prosperous and I'm getting beat up all the time. Why is that? What kind of justice is there in the world when I see that going on? God is often kind to the wicked. They have good health, they have success in business, they're lucky in love, and by most people's ideas, they have a good life. But people that believe that are totally missing out on what mercy is all about. They choose to see God's kindness as a kind of approval of their lifestyle. In other words, just because God is kind to you, even if you're in wickedness, that doesn't mean he approves. It means he's merciful. That means he's slow about his anger. It means he's giving you opportunities to straighten yourself up. And people don't see it that way, though. They're so corrupted, they see it as approval on their behavior. So they treat God's mercy like it's nothing, like it's no big deal, and they make the fatal error of believing that they've actually earned God's favor, and they merit His mercy. They deserve it. Paul mentions three aspects of God's mercy here to the sinner. He says God is kind, God preserves people's lives, He provides for people, He protects people, and they don't appreciate it. So... He is, secondly, forbearing. That is, that God does not instantly smite the foolish and ungrateful wicked person, but he continues in kindness, withholding his wrath. When death and disease and dangers are actually all around that person, he withholds his wrath and keeps them safe for a time. But the man isn't interested in God's forbearance at all, so God is, third thing, patient. He keeps waiting God is absolutely rich in, in just that kind of kindness towards sinners. And his purpose in such kindness is what? To lead them, it says here, verse 4, to repentance. That's the reason he's kind. He's giving them an opportunity to turn away from their sin. Here's what the moral person in his own mind should do. He should say, you know, God has been so good to me. He's been so kind. He's allowed me as a moral person to have a perspective on life that a lot of people don't have. I, I can actually see wickedness and evil for what it is. I can see it around me, things that other people do and they approve of, I don't approve of. I, I know that it's wrong. And even as I condemn such things, however, I, I find those things in my own heart. I find anger there and, and self-centeredness there and lust there and lies and deceptions and, and gossip and arrogance. And yet God has, has let me live and he's even prospered my life in important ways and now I must repent and give myself to him. 
and use all the remains of my life and all the years that are left to me in his service because he's been so gracious and so kind to me when I didn't deserve it and I should humble myself before him and plead for his mercy. That's what God would expect would be the right thing to do. That's, that's the right way to respond to his kindness towards wicked people. But when that's not done and a person clings to their belief in their own superiority and they cling to the idea, the notion that God owes them heaven because they have condemned the right things, well, all they're doing then is filling up their account before the day of judgment. Verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's an incredible expression, storing up wrath. We would think of it in terms of bank accounts. It's like you're just socking all this good money in your bank account, you know. Well, in this, in this picture, you're socking all this wickedness in there that, that deserves the wrath of God. So it increases every day as you add more and more from your stubborn and rebellious heart putting in all this stuff that brings down the wrath of God and it gets bigger and bigger and so the wrath gets more intense and more burning and more uh, explosive and, and you're not experiencing it yet at all. You're just storing it up and building this big account for the day of reckoning. It's scary. William Newell, the old Baptist commentator, he said this. He said, Remember, if the goodness of God toward you is not leading you to repentance... If it is not leading you to repentance, then every day, every hour you live, drops another drop into the terrible treasure of indignation, which will burst the great dam of God's long-suffering and the great day of wrath when God shall reveal his righteous judgment. That's a wonderful way to say it. And it's true. So remember, Paul is talking to the person, to the individual who perceives himself as moral, a man who believes in right and wrong. A man who condemns the wicked in his own heart. But it is this man who is truly guilty before God just as much because he pridefully remains unconverted, uninterested, unrepentant, and doesn't see his need. And who, while he disdains his need for a Savior and utterly rejects his need for a Savior, is in reality storing up for himself wrath every single day. And that man will be surprised on the great day when God's wrath is given full vent and his righteous judgment is, to use Paul's word, revealed. It's really an interesting word, righteous judgment. It's one word in Greek. It's really an unusual word. You don't find it almost anywhere. Paul just put these two words together, righteous judgment. On God's righteous judgment, it's a, it's a powerful term. There's nothing arbitrary or inexact about God's judgment. It is perfectly correct. It is righteous through and through. It's total justice. Just as in verse 2, it says it is according to truth or rightly falls on people. So what is coming is the righteous judgment of God who will, verse 6 it says, render to every man according to his deeds. Every man, no exceptions. No excuses. No escapes. No exceptions. Now what follows this is really interesting because as in many other places in Scripture, 
all of humanity is divided into two groups. It's always two groups. Always. The sheep and the goats. The good fish and the bad fish. The narrow path and the broad way. I mean, it always comes down to two. So we have it here. Verse 7. You will render every man according to his deeds to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There's only two ends. Two ends. Wrath and indignation on one side and eternal life on the other side. And what's so interesting about that is that it's just this radical division. It's always that way in the Bible. Either glory and eternal life or utter damnation and wrath and indignation. And you just go, well, people are so mixed in their lives. How does that all get sorted out? Well, that's what Paul's going to explain in this whole book. That's what the book of Romans is, is to explain to you. What the difference is between a saved person and an unsaved person. Because everybody starts in the same place. Condemned. Well, how do some people suddenly get to this place where there's glory and eternal life and no wrath and no indignation? In fact, when he gets to chapter 8, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. You just go, what do you mean no condemnation to those who are in what? Who knows that verse? Christ Jesus. Thank you. Some of you know that. So there's a huge difference between the person that's in Christ and the person that isn't. Although both start at the same place. So he's talking about this Judgment based on doing good, on deeds. But he's not saying that you earn eternal life by doing good deeds. And we know that just from the whole New Testament, but it, it's describing, verse 7 is describing a life that is submitted to God. And verse 8 is describing a life that stands in firm rebellion against God, that is unrepentant, unsubmissive. Now verse 7 cannot mean that good deeds are a way of attaining eternal life. Why can't it mean that? Well, for one thing, he's just reminded the moral man, he's just said to the moral man that he is guilty of his own standard and is what? Without excuse. So he's condemned. He's condemned himself, he says. Secondly, this section on man's condition actually ends in chapter 3. We can't get that far today. But in chapter 3, he makes two unequivocal, unquestionable statements. He says in 3.10, he says, There is none righteous, not one. And then he says in verse 23, all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. So the one who attains eternal life in chapter 2, verse 7, is seeking for glory and eternal life. But in chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, but all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. They can't attain that by their own efforts. So eternal life is not earned by good deeds. But, and here's what he's really talking about, good deeds do characterize a life that will result in eternal life. How then is eternal life obtained? Well, he told us in chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous man shall live by faith. Faith in Christ is what saves. Faith in the provision that God has made. And that's where the whole book of Romans is taking us. And when we get to chapter 3, he's going to tell us that, and then he's going to say it again in chapter 4, and he's going to say it even stronger in chapter 5, that the only way to be right with God and have eternal life is by faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. That's how you get that way. And the person that does that and has faith, back to verse 7 here, has a life that is characterized by seeking, doing good, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's what characterizes the person that has faith in Christ. That's where he's going to end this up. 
But we can say confidently that the one who receives eternal life is the one who perseveres in doing well. It is a mark of the one that has faith. Then verse 8 gives us insight into what it is that leads us into eternal life by explaining what it is that denies it to us. He's going to say um, that salvation is not by doing good deeds by the way he describes it in verse 8, how you don't get it. If you look at verse 8, he says, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. These folks will do things their own, do things their own way. They have their own scheme for how they're going to please God. They have a spirit that is not submissive to God. Their morality is their own. They believe. They have the right to pick and choose. But the reality is this really interesting phrase. He doesn't say they do not obey the law. They do not obey the commandments. They do not obey God's rules. What does he say? They do not obey the truth. They don't obey the truth. That's really an interesting expression. That takes us back to faith again. Because from the very beginning, what has characterized the righteous is submission to and faith in whatever God has revealed to them. That's true from the beginning of the Bible all the way through. Abel made sacrifices based on the provision that God had made and had faith in that. Cain didn't. Wasn't interested. Had his own way. Right from there all the way through. The individual in verse 8 feels no compulsion to obey the truth. That God has revealed something that's just of little interest or consequence to him. He just doesn't really care. And what is the truth? Well, there's two verses in John's Gospel that really help us just get a grab on it right away. John 3.36, it says... Well, let's start with John 6, and then I'll go back to John chapter 3. John chapter 6, verse 28 says that people are talking to Jesus, and they say, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Okay, they're talking about works. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And what does he say? He says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Do you remember that? The work he wants to see is faith, because that is the thing. You can't do enough works to please God. But if you do the work of faith, if you have faith, that covers all the bases because Christ is your Savior then. Then in chapter 3, verse 36, John just flat out says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you believe you have eternal life, if you do not obey, the wrath of God abides on you. So obedience is believing. The real work of God that men must do is to believe in Jesus because only by him, because only he died on our behalf, only he lived a perfect life, only he is the single only mediator between man and God. And by faith in him, anyone can approach God and be accepted by him. Anyone. But apart from him, the moral man, so-called, the man that believes he's moral, who can't even keep his own standard... He's going to stand before God in his own righteousness and make his own case. And guess what? He is self-condemned and without excuse. He had better repent and embrace the Savior in humility or he will experience only, Paul's words, indignation and wrath, verse 8. And he better not count on anything else to excuse his own personal sin. It doesn't matter 
what our heritage is or what our race is or what our nationality is or what rituals we've been passed through or what religions we've been involved with because verse 9 says there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. He's taking care of the Jews there. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because why? Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. God does not look at people and say, oh, I'll cut you some slack because you're in this group or you're a really good songwriter so you get a special deal because, what, you know, that's not there. There's no partiality. None at all. Doesn't matter if your daddy was a preacher and your mother was a saint. Doesn't matter if you're a preacher or a saint. Doesn't matter if you wrote a textbook on ethics or provided counsel for 10 million people. You will stand before God on your own without excuse and without escape. Or you will stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, which is sufficient for everything. Those are the only two ways you go. And one way ends in wrath and indignation and the other way ends in eternal life and glory. It's very clear. Yeah, this horrible thing happened this week. Um, I'm sure you saw it on the news or read about it in the newspapers. There, there, there's a wedding in Israel. Did you hear about that? I mean, this big wedding, and it's on the third floor of this building, and just 500 people are in this room dancing and having a great time. It's just a feast going on. It's a wedding. And the building just falls to pieces right out from under them. 500 people in a room, and the floor, third floor, just collapses, hits the second floor, it collapses, and people just are falling into this pit. I mean, it's like something out of a horror movie or, or something out of the Ten Commandments. I mean, literally, the, it's like the ground opening up and just swallowing all these people right in the middle of a wedding party while they were dancing. I mean, it's incredible. And here's where, here's where non-Christians just leap all over us and they say, Whoa, what kind of a God would allow something like that to happen? This horrible thing happened to these people having a good time and this wonderful day in their life and how could any good being allow something like that to happen? You know, they asked Jesus just the exact same question. The exact same question. Because Pontius Pilate had just arbitrarily gone on a frenzy and his police went out there and riot police and just did bad killed people indiscriminately one day. And they all killed. There's a bunch of people were killed. And they asked you, said, what about that? Were those people sinners? And Jesus said, no. He said, do you, he, these are his exact words, Luke 13, 2. He says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners or greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? He says, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he offers his own illustration. He says, do you remember that tower that fell a while back? There were 18 people killed. The Tower of Siloam, it collapsed. It was the same thing, structural problem. They seem to have structural problems in Jerusalem. This tower falls, 18 people are killed. And he says, do you suppose... You see, Jesus hasn't all been out of shape when disasters happen. He isn't like, oh, gosh, you know, um, how can I explain about God? Oh, um, so, um, uh, you know, don't feel bad about God, because, you know, he, if he could have stopped it, he would have. And 
He says, do you suppose those 18 people on who that tower fell were worse sinners than all the other people in Jerusalem? He said, and this is his answer. He says, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, if anything like that happens, it's only exactly what everyone deserves. Is that hard for you to understand? Because if it's really true what the Bible says about human nature, all we're doing right now by not having this building collapsing on us is enjoying the mercy and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. Every day, he's patient. Once in a while, his patience drops out to let us know that it can and will eventually drop out. But everybody deserves the same fate. And he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know, he hasn't been out of shape at all about things like that happening. He doesn't feel the need to defend God or God's will. He doesn't pretend that God isn't sovereign or didn't have total control over that circumstance. He says, that's exactly what sinners deserve. And, and the day you understand that, the day, that's the day you will have theology well grasped. You'll have a, a knowledge of the truth that is way beyond the normal. Because when you understand human nature and how deserving we are of God's wrath, truly deserving, whether we are self-condemned moralists who judge others and do the same thing ourselves, or whether we are those wicked people at the end of Romans chapter 1, it doesn't make any difference. What's deserved is utter annihilation and destruction and, frankly, damnation. So, you know, falling through a hotel thing is, a, is nothing compared to being damned forever. Well, Paul has more to say. And we'll continue the line of thought next week. But think about it. Let's pray. Father, we just appreciate the clarity of the word in this difficult matter. Don't let us be moralists thinking ourselves better when we know really that we do the same things that other people do. Give us the humility to embrace your sovereignty and most of all to appreciate your forbearance and patience and kindness that you don't let those things happen to very many people in this life. And the day I know, Lord, that we know that we deserve the same as the day we'll be on the right track, that we'll have a true understanding of our condition and your grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation, which you make freely available to all. And we pray that you would give us a true understanding of all of these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.